0: Policy Radio, and this is your host, Elon Levin, coming back like a slow voice on a wave of phase haze. That weren't no DJ. That was hazy cosmic jive. There's a star man waiting in the sky. And in the pages of the fabulous new graphic novel, Bowie, Stardust, Reagan's and Moon Age Daydreams, by writer Steve Horton, artist Mike Alred, and with the great Laura Alred on colors, of course, Steve Horton joins us on the podcast today. Hello Steve. Nice.
1: Hi, Alana. This is Steve. It's great to be here.
0: Uh, Steve is the co-creator of the book. Um, and he, uh, Steve is co-creator of Bowie, Stardust, Regos and Moon Age Daydreams with the Alreds. He is also writing uh, Satellite Falling for IDW and Amala's Blade for Dark Horse. And for our listeners who might not have already heard about this book, here's a blurb from the publisher. Um Bowie Stardust, Reagans, and Moonage Daydreams chronicles the rise of Bowie's career from obscurity to fame, paralleled by the rise and fall of his alter ego, Ziggy Stardust. As the spiders from Mars slowly implode, Bowie wrestles with a Ziggy persona. The outcome of this internal conflict will change not only David Bowie, but also the world. Called a, quote, ravishing spectacle by Publishers Weekly, and praised by Rolling Stone, Nerdist, Comics Beat, Newsarama, and shouted out online from everyone from Patton Oswalt to Jane Weldon of the Go-Go's, this is the Bowie book of 2020. And I absolutely agree. I'm so happy to have you with us.
1: Thank you. I'm really enjoying all of the press and other uh, reviews. It's been fantastic.
0: Well, you know, January is David Bowie month, you guys were I mean, every month is David Bowie month, but it's an extra bonus to be like his birth month is also the month of his death. So I think if you were looking for a birthday appropriate way to to commemorate, um, this is a great book for folks to pick up then too.
1: Yes, um, there are festivals going on all over the world. There's one in Dublin, there's uh, there's a library, uh, a museum in Philly that's doing a Bowie week. uh, And it's just everyone's celebrating his life. And I think it's definitely a wonderful time to release a graphic novel.
0: Yeah. um, I mean, you reached out to me about this while it was just beginning. And I I was so excited because um, I'm like an enormous Bowie fan dating back to childhood and uh, i'm a huge fan of the all Rids and um, it was really great to have you reach out to me so thanks for doing that tell me a bit how the project came together uh like how you teamed up with them and how you pitched the book
1: it all started with a tweet uh about a year uh, three years ago uh th- their orbital uh in in you the uk in london did an art gallery uh about Bowie and commissioned artists from all over to draw, uh, their interpretations of different albums, uh, kind of Mm. alter alternative album covers. Uh, and they had, they had a, um, they had them giant sized and framed and everything. And I saw some of those in tweeted and it kind of inspired me to what, you know, what if someone did a graphic novel bio, David Bowie, and uh, it kind of snowballed from there. Uh, the original artist didn't work out, so uh, I asked around, and my friend Phil Hester was like, "Dude, you got to talk to, to Mike Allred. Uh, he's the world's biggest Bowie fan, and mm-hmm. he he's been wanting to do something like this for a long time." And so I tracked down Mike's email, and uh, it went from there. And it, it just—he uh, was very interested. and He had just come off *Silver Surfer*, and uh, so it was a really
0: ah. So now I know exactly when this got underway. So uh, this uh, so this was all sort of coming out of um, Bowie's, like the period where we were all, you know, like just really struck by Bowie's death. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Everyone was really sad and there were a lot of really great art, art posted around commemorating his life, his life uh, from his various different personas throughout his career. And uh, so it seemed like a really good, time really good timing to kick kick something like this off to really celebrate the the uh, artist
0: it was interesting like i this was definitely one of the only celebrity deaths that i mean that just really impacted me um and it was interesting seeing like i had the friends who i knew were all big bowie fans who like we sort of went to each other and talked about it immediately and like planned a karaoke night and like told each other about different events to go to that we all went to and stuff. But it was interesting to see sort of who else I knew that I didn't necessarily know was a a big Bowie fan. Um, And and then a big opportunity to educate a lot of people who had a more limited exposure that it isn't just the song changes. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Right. uh, Yeah. Um, And and, and I think it's interesting. Like I think because of the graphic uh, potency of Ziggy Stardust and Bowie characters in general. There's definitely a big Bowie comics overlap, and you know, um, but I, I, I'm like, this is definitely an a music an artist who uh, there's a big comic audience, you know, hungry to to look at art about him.
1: Yeah, uh, there's a lot of overlap because Bowie is so visual in his presentations and in his songs. I think that people that and because he was so eclectic and kind of um, misfit and uh not not the usual rock star so i think that appealed to a lot of the same same audience that were were into comics uh and you mentioned that as death was was so sad and it, um prince and george michael tied right around the same time in yeah. months of each other so it was really awful there were a lot of people yeah. that were that grew up with all that kind of music so um yeah it was it was rough uh, it was very very sad that day
0: What was your uh, connection to Bowie? How did you first get into his?
1: Been a fan of his for a very long time. Uh, Listened to his stuff uh, on the radio Uh, on Sirius XM and on Spotify a lot, a lot, uh, especially Hunky Dory and Ziggy. Uh, I was mm-hmm. I was somewhat of a casual fan in the, at at first uh, until I, when I decided to do this book, I did a lot more research, listened to all of his other albums, uh, read a lot of other biographies and uh, various works, and really got into this whole body of work. While, while I was putting the initial stage.
0: Well, I counted myself lucky in being able to see the Big Bowie Museum exhibit in New York twice. Um, oh, I
1: missed! I missed it. I really wanted to see. It.
0: I don't know where else it's going to be, but um, it, it was. It, there was definitely a lot that I. I've been a big Bowie fan since literally childhood, but there's absolutely things that I didn't know that I have only seen referenced in the museum exhibit or in your book. Mm-hmm. And there's even some things in your book that I don't remember from the exhibit. So, like, that's really impressive.
1: There were a lot in my original script, and then uh, my, Mike rewrote it from scratch. Uh, it included most of my original script, but also added a lot more detail from his knowledge and his research, which was very much superior to mine, and added a lot of details from that he knew and that he had read about that really no one else is really um put all in in one body of work before so it it really is kind of definitive even though we have all those surreal psychedelic sequences the the scenes where there's things happen are as factual as we could get them
0: well I mean one of the things that you know everybody wants to know with a book like this is like you know is it really going to use the comics medium or is it just going to be like drawings of 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 photos and you guys really went in there and you know you have bowie dialoguing with himself and you have different pop culture elements speaking with it and like this is definitely a thing that can only exist as a comic book and that i absolutely applaud
1: i like that uh it's not just talking hands and this happened and then this happened but we um break up a lot of it with visual depictions of the songs uh since we can't print the lyrics in the book and just showing that uh this is what the song would, would it look like if it was a real thing um one of my favorite ones is the scene where he comes up with uh he he comes up with one of the songs uh for the very first time uh it's not ch- changes was a good one uh life on mars is what i'm thinking of it first yeah. comes up with that song and he he uh Remember, he is on the phone and hearing about a really bad Frank Sinatra song and decides to do his own version, it's better. And he sees, visualizes the entire song in the background as he kind of rushes to the piano and starts composing it. And I I really like that scene.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of moments like that. I mean, for me, who's like just a general, a huge music nerd about the 60s and 70s in particular, and also the 80s, like I, I loved how many how many opportunities you gave us to see the Mike Alred take on different particular artists. And, you know, I, I have his, uh, his indie comic, uh, Red Rocket seven here, which actually does have him drawing a number of those other figures in it throughout, but it, it, the, the way he's drawing them now is more refined. It's really interesting. Like I'm looking at the drawing of his Alice Cooper in your book and his drawing of Alice Cooper in, this older book. And um, it, it's really neat to sort of see that change over time. And I, I'm just so thankful that you gave me, who is a massive Alice Cooper fan, the opportunity to see uh, Mike Alred draw Alice Cooper again. <laughs> That's right.
1: I, I would think that if you if Mike would ever wanted to do a book on Alice Cooper, I know that there has, they've already done a Alice Cooper graphic novel a long time oh, ago. Yeah. I think it vertigo or somewhere. Uh, I think uh, was it Neil Gaiman involved with that? I'm not positive. Um Hi, I don't uh, know. And would make it better. <laughs> uh, but if, it, it wasn't if you were to ever do one of those or the monkeys or someone like that, I think it would be amazing. And I really like how he drew uh, Monty Python and Elton John uh, and oh, Iggy, Pop, yeah. Iggy, Iggy Pop and all of those great uh, peers that Bowie interacted with. Well,
0: I think it's so. I think it's so great that you actually also just really show the bands. So, like, you're not just drawing Alice Cooper, you're drawing the actual Alice Cooper band members. When you have him interacting with um, Mott the Hoople, like, it's not just I'm talking to Ian Hunter. It's like, no, here's all the guys in the band. You have them all interacting with all of the other like people and it doesn't make it just be about front men, you know?
1: That's all, Mike. Yeah, he's he's a big fan of all of the bands, and he makes su- he made sure to get every band member in uh, exhaustive detail in there, and not just the the leading men that everyone would know about.
0: Yeah, well, how, how so how did so you how did you collaborate with with him on that? Like, you wrote the script, you said initially, and
1: I wrote, I wrote the initial script and uh, found a literary agent, uh, and then uh, the artist dropped out, and then I found Mike. Uh, he, he did kind of an artist's take on the script, uh, which was much better. And then after that, we took it around to publishers and several publishers were interested and we landed on insight, uh, which was ended up being a really good home for the book. Uh, and we collaborated back and forth on that shooting script, uh, a lot initially. And, but from then on, he just started drawing it, uh, and sending in, uh, ink pages and then color pages from Laura uh, over the next couple of years. So it felt like Christmas every day.
0: I may have seen an image from one of those in advance and may have lost my shit. So, <laughs> um.
1: yes, uh, some of those early inked and color pages were pretty amazing to, to see for the very first time.
0: Um, so when you're scripting something that's biographical but not necessarily like this happened and that happened, like when it's being more experimental, like how do you decide what moments you want to focus on and which ones you're sort of want to be a little bit more like, here's these people talking to each other about a thing that we know historically and which ones you're going to be more interpretive about.
1: Well, whenever there's a reference to a song uh, in the background, either song playing or a song being written uh, or referenced, uh, the scene where... uh, David Bowie's playing by himself because his band abandons him. Uh, he's playing black country rock on stage as a solo solo part, which uh, that's kind of an obscure song. It's a B side, but it's really good. Uh, and- I
0: basically consider that like him doing his version of T Rex. <laughs> it's right. like. It's like, this is a T-Rex song. like.
1: And we had to put, you know, he was on a horse, and it's you know, very much a country theme there, and it's really good. And so any anytime there's a song we want to reference, we make sure to have it be very visual. Uh, and this is another... Mike Allred touch uh, when he's walking by the storefront and looking in the window uh, and you kind of hear changes playing in the background of your mind. Uh, you see him looking at all of his future personas, kind of peering into the future at all of the different uh, looks that he's going to take on following Siggy. And I thought that was a really cool page too.
0: Oh yeah. Well, I love the way you guys have um, handled Bowie's brother, his older brother, Terry Burns is uh, like his importance in his early life, and then his breakdown. Like it's just, it's just one page, but it's like this very complicated moment. Um, and like, yeah,
1: yeah. There were several songs in on Man Who Sold the World" and "Hunky that referenced his brother because this is when it was all happening, and it's very, very. It's a very, very sad thing not a lot of people knew about for quite a while and to be able to depict a little bit of that um tragedy uh was important i thought for to for for um both bowie and his brother's life
0: yeah his brother for folks who don't know his, his brother was old was older and introduced him to a lot of good music and was struggling with mental illness really serious mental illness and um had to be institutionalized and died young and it's just really tragic yeah
1: If you listen to uh, the Bewley brothers on, I believe it's on Hunky Dory.
0: Hunky
1: Dory, uh, And he didn't tell anyone at first, but that song was meant to be the Bowie brothers and changed the name. And it's definitely about him and his brother and their uh, their relationship. It's a really good song.
0: When, when there's pages that have, like, lots of collections of images, like advertisements and movie posters and stuff like that, are those things that you that, that, that you script, or are those things that Mike pulls together? Or?
1: Some of it was in my original script, but most of that was Mike uh, kind of putting mm-hmm. detail into the background, some Andy Warhol paintings, uh, album yeah. covers, uh, different things. When, when uh, something that was in the original script uh, is when... Bowie and Tony Visconti are walking and talking and uh, talking about their favorite bands, which you see in the background, but then they go see a movie, Knife in the Water, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Mike drew a little scene from that movie in the background, and uh, it's kind of a black and white movie. Uh, yeah. And I thought that was Yeah,
0: Polanski. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I didn't know that about that particular connection either. Like, that was definitely like, oh, okay.
1: Uh-huh. I know Polanski's not a good person, but yeah. it's because he was <laughs> he was he was referenced in once upon a time in Hollywood recently in in the movies, and so it's just kind of a little bit of a connection between that period of time and Hollywood and the period yeah. of time uh, of the of uh, the story.
0: I mean that's also like if that's like who they were watching, like that's not, you know. It's not like an endorsement of whatever, but no, um,
1: no one, no one knew at the time uh, was what was yeah. really going on with him until so much later.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I like the conversation with 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 Tony Visconti and like when you're, well, yeah, when you're having like dialogue with like living people that would not necessarily have been documented. Like, how are how are you like how do you work that? Like, how are you like okay, this is what Tony's going to say or.
1: Um, we had there's some artistic license there. Uh, we know when people met and, and we know they talked, but we don't always know the dialogue because no one r- really remembers what exactly they said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we tried to put in as much authentic dialogue that people remembered as we could, uh, like um, during the recording of "Prettiest Star," all, all of that as is- really really, what they said in the recording studio oh, wow. uh, so we tried to include as much as we, as we could find in our various reference materials but a lot of it we just tried to be as authentic to the voice and the speech patterns of, of uh, people in the UK at the time
0: yeah and I mean it is true that a lot of these people are very well documented like I can look up an interview with Tony Visconti you know the producer and musician like you know, quickly and sort of be like, yeah, okay, that feels right.
1: He just had a biography we published this past year, and then we bought it. Uh, it was on sale Amazon, and <laughs> I, I sent it to uh, Mike, and he said, I said, you got to get this. And he said, I'm already on it.
0: Oh, wow. That's great. Were there any people who cropped up in this story that you did not expect to find in there?
1: Uh, the scene with Monty Python was all Mike, and I thought that was neat that he, they happened to be at the same hotel. Uh, he decided to draw all of Money Python's various characters uh, at once in the lobby. I thought that was neat. Yeah,
0: super charming. Mm-hmm. One thing that really struck me, I had no idea about, was the Christopher Lee attempting to collaborate with Bowie.
1: I didn't know that either. No, another detail Mike added in. And uh, I like that he put a little scene of um, Christopher Lee as uh, Dracula Hipp- Hypnotizing Bowie, I thought that was kind of
0: funny. <laughs> oh my god! And they're trying to schedule something together, and the, the, like it's this amazing contrast between their very prosaic dialogue of like two famous people trying to see if they can get their calendars cleared to work together, while one of them is a vampire uh-huh. and the other of them is Ziggy Stardust. Uh-huh.
1: And there's another scene close to that where um, uh, Bowie and full Ziggy gear jumps on a plane and flies to see elvis uh in New York and uh I thought that this that scene turned out really neat because he's not only is he afraid of flying and it's a horrible plane flight but then he goes and sits in the front row and gets to see uh elvis and they're in their apparently their eyes met for a second and that's close they got to beating each other
0: oh man well i I love the the way you the this the story that you guys have with um uh, it, Bowie's last airplane flight for at least a long period of time.
1: We put a little Twilight Zone in there because it was it was so so much turbulence and uh, he he hated the flight so much that he that he vowed never to fly again after that.
0: I mean, I yeah, <laughs> and then of course you know train travel became significant in how he wrote. Uh, later albums in the 70s but um
1: plus he took a lot of boats as well when he went from the uk tour to the american tour he took uh, queen elizabeth too uh while the rest of the band flew
0: yeah and you had some interesting stuff from that i always had a hard time struggling with like i mean it's interesting actually i should ask you like you guys chose you know obviously you're focusing on the ziggy stardust period in part because it has some of the most outrageous visuals to draw on, and you know Ziggy looks a, a great deal like a science fiction hero and superhero himself. But you're, you, but you're focusing on like that whole life cycle of the character from the beginning and the end um, as that particular window. Like how how did you sort of narrow down what you were going to focus on?
1: Well, it started with the framing sequence uh, of the Harris Smith for the final performance. Of Ziggy uh, captured in the mo- uh, Ziggy Stardust movie. And kind of started at the end there, uh, talking about his final speech and revealing a few words from it every so often throughout the book, and then f- flashing back to his life from there. And it seems like a really good frame for the first uh, third to half of his career uh, to just kind of frame the whole thing there. Uh, if we were ever, if we were to ever come back and do more Bowie in another volume, uh, then of course we would cover the Thin White Duke and all of the other eras there that took place after.
0: Mm hmm. Do you? Uh, I was it was interestingly, like you know, I'm always sad when it ends, but you gave us a really nice long send off afterwards.
1: Another thing that Mike uh, I'm going to give Mike full credit for is that he did this epilogue where he uh, he, he did ask uh, for feedback of, you know, what, what sorts of things I can include here. And I threw a bunch of stuff at him and he put it all in there about uh, different things that bowie did in his life uh one panel at a time uh, thereafter so there's a lot of there's so many in there that i, I don't even know half of what they are uh, but i really like that he inc- he included things like twin peaks uh and the prestige yeah. and, and things like that in there as well as all of his later uh labyrinth and all of the other uh various media appearances that he had
0: well, what was an interesting piece of ephemera that you sort of uncovered in your research that you just did not expect to to see?
1: Uh, I think the how Bowie and, and Angie first met it, at uh his office, and then immediately went to a Hoople, not Hoople, uh, immediately went to a, a rock concert. Uh, I can't remember the name of the band off the top of my head. Uh, they immediately went to a concert, hung out there, and then went back to his place afterward, and, and they had a really interesting relationship. And so being able to capture the initial stages of their kind of tumultuous marriage uh, was a lot of fun.
0: Definitely, yeah, and she's very vocal in this, and, um, you know, has a lot of personality and agency, which matches reality, so...
1: <laughs> she helps come up with his, with his hairstyle and his uh, fashion, and a lot of the stuff that made Ziggy Ziggy has definitely credited her, and rightly so.
0: Yeah, definitely, and, like, I, you know, I feel like you did a good job with the voices. I mean, uh, Mick Ronson is definitely someone I've listened to a fair amount as, and listened to Mark Bolin a lot. And I'm like, yep, nope, that, that, that feels like those are, those are sound, sounds like them to me.
1: The Ronson scene that I like is uh, one of the very first concerts that the Spiders ever do together, uh, which was recorded. Uh, so I took a lot of that from the actual recording uh, bootleg and... Uh Ronson's kind of a very shy person in public, uh, on stage and he always tries to introduce him at first and he's and he, you can't hear uh the guitarist say anything, so he's like, Can you step up to the microphone a little bit more so you can hear your voice? <laughs> and so we kinda of captured that and uh, of course Mark Bowen appears throughout the book bu- throughout the book. Uh yeah. he's kind kind of a friend of me and kind of drifts in and out of Bowie's life. Uh, is he's there when they first put on the costumes and uh, what's considered one of the very first glam concert, rock concerts of all time that, uh, the whole audience was indifferent except for, for him. And he's up there in in a gladiator costume in front of in front of the stage, rocking out with them. <laughs> so I thought that that was cool.
0: I never like I, on the one hand, I understood the frenemy thing. On the other hand, I like don't like, they just, you know they were doing similar things for a period of time but they weren't doing the same thing and then you know like like t-rex kind of stayed doing one thing and and bowie went and did more things i don't i don't understand how that's a com- competition you know i always wonder if that was just the press making it into a thing
1: i think it was probably overblown that they were actually friends but i think that they were trying to make sure they didn't that they didn't bite off of each other they didn't copy each other's work and then they were trying trying to stay as independent of each other as they could so they wouldn't be accused of ripping each other off even though there are songs that bowie specifically does uh of his voice mark bowen's voice oh yeah Uh, (laughs) so he's definitely referencing him in in some way uh, whether either to make fun of him or as a nomad it's hard to say
0: yeah it, it, that is that is that is really real like but you know and bowie does her manges, like you know i mean like queen queen bitch is him doing lou reed and i loved uh-huh. how you have lou reed being like i really like that song queen <laughs> Bitch." it's like yeah i don't know if lou reed ever said that but I, you know one one hopes <laughs> that's right uh
1: and i like the scene where he um meets Martha hoople and uh gives gives them all the young dudes and originally and of course, his interfering manager prevents them from working together after that, even though they really wanted to, and, and no, one, yeah. no one knew that yeah. he kind of shut that whole thing down. Uh, but I thought that was, it was uh, Al Red really drew them, the whole band, well, and and of course that song's amazing. So,
0: I mean, I, I the fact that it was the song um, Drive-In Saturday" that he wanted the Hoople to do is like, oh yeah, no, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> that's that a good. That good. that would be a good song for them to do. That would have been great. Um, and I also didn't, you know, like, I mean, I mean, people don't know, like, you know, I'm, like Bowie giving them all the young dudes is why Mott the Hoople, like, didn't break up right away. And then we we got more amazing music. And, uh, you know, I love that he went on, that um, Ian Hunter went on to keep doing stuff with Mick Ronson and just like, and, you know, they had such a huge impact on glamor, um, on like hair metal, glam metal, whatever you want to call that much maligned genre. That's actually awesome. Um And yeah you just sort of see all these connections through the story and the the comic can really do that in these splash pages and in these any of these different paneled scenes
1: i like that he saved their their career because he really liked the band and gave them this hit song uh and then much much later uh when david bowie's career was kind of in the tubes uh, trent Reznor comes along and says hey why don't we do a tour where we each take half the the stage and and he kind of saved bowie's career in turn i thought that was pretty amazing
0: I saw that. I saw that tour. I am extraordinarily lucky. I uh, I got to see them doing outside at Meriwether Post Pavilion in like nineteen ninety, uh, whatever it was. It was yeah, amazing.
1: That, yeah. I'm jealous. I never got to see Bowie live, but I, I would have liked to have seen him during that period because there's uh, a lot of underrated music during the, the the later period Bowie that not a lot of people know about. But there's there's a lot of good stuff there.
0: Yeah, it's true. I mean, and I think his the finality of his death uh was a moment where i was like okay ilana there's albums of his that you haven't really focused on because it's so easy for you to just go back and play ones that you already love like you're gonna sit here and you're gonna listen to the stuff that you assumed you yet you wouldn't really like and just like give it another try and you know i definitely expanded like the albums that were in my regular play as a result of that
1: yeah i really like uh earthling I, I like outside uh i mm-hmm. like uh a lot of those other later ones of course black star is really amazing uh there's a lot of good stuff towards the end uh he wasn't selling that well but it was still really critically acclaimed and mm-hmm. if people that are kind of casual boy fans like myself initially that only really listen to um hunky dory ever want to go on spotify and check out some of those later albums they're they're uh pretty good. I especially like the song I'm Afraid of Americans. Uh, but The album <laughs> the, the album version is only okay, but when Trent Reznor came along and remixed it uh, for the deluxe edition, there's a single, and that, that's the version that became the, um, the amazing the music hit. video. And Big Head, yeah. uh, his biggest later hit. And uh, that, I remember listening to that song in college, and Really, kind of rediscovering the later period Bowie then, and, and uh, what that video was playing over and over again on MTV Two, which was on everyone's TV in college, and, and I thought that was really neat.
0: Oh yeah, I um, I I got to see uh, Woody Woodmansey, um, the you know the drummer from the Spiders of Mars, uh, play um, him and Tony Visconti and some additional people um, do just play like The Man Who Sold The World album start to finish plus some additional songs um not long, like just a couple of weeks after Bowie died and um I was really wondering how they were going to handle the uh, the vocals right and I I don't remember the name of the singer but I actually think they did it right they he was a he was a British guy from a new wave band that I'd actually heard of from the 80s and he didn't sound like Bowie, but he was inspired by Bowie because, hi, he was a British new wave guy um, and he had the right accent. And so it was like, it was like, yeah, no, this works. I, I, you know, it wasn't like an impersonation, but it was like coming from the same planet in a way. Hmm.
1: I, I really would like to see Holy Holy in person. I think that. Would oh,
0: guess
1: okay, would yeah. well, be really fun to see them, uh, especially since Man of Soul the World was really never toured much, uh, and so a lot of those songs were really played live until until Woody got a hold of them. And I think that would be really cool to see that whole album played. Uh, plus, his bio, uh, his autobiography, was it was uh, one of our many sources, and he had a lot of really good first hand accounts in there, and so it was mm. it's it's an excellent read.
0: Yeah, I mean, it feels like the only one of the spiders who I really know anything about was is Mick Ronson. Um, mm-hmm. I have to admit, not as knowledgeable about the others.
1: He's a, he did have a sh- uh, short-lived solo career afterward and played with many yep. other artists and wrote a lot of music and performed a lot. Uh, he Had a really nice career post Bowie, and, and of course, he's really still underrated. Not a lot of people know who he is or what uh, impact he had on on. Bowie and and, uh, and music in general. He's definitely one of the unsung great guitarists. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's some solos that are just amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, all of Bowie's guitarists were. Um, I and if I, I have a playlist of like my favorite rock guitar solos, and like a lot of them are from different Bowie albums, and it's not you know it's not even necessarily the same person, but he's just working with amazing artists.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so. Sorry, I realize, like, we could just talk about how amazing Bowie is the whole time, but I'm wondering, actually, like, if we have listeners out there who are just sort of like, they've listened to the Greatest Hits album, which is called Changes Bowie, which, as a wonderful segment from the Venture Brothers cartoon is here to remind you, is a compilation and is not an album. Um <laughs> Where do you, you know, I obviously we're going to be like, you should listen to Spider Rise and Fall of uh, Spiders of Mars, because that's like the album that's at the heart of this book. But um, where do you where would you say folks should go as their number two? Do you say do folks go to a lot insane or do you want to folks go to earlier to hunky dory?
1: If you want to kind of really get a sense of the book itself, uh, then listening to. Uh, Ziggy Stardust, and then Aladdin Sane kind of covers most of it. Um, but if you want to be a, become a fan of Bowie, uh, apart from the book, then going back to uh, Hunky Dory, the Banas of the World, and then jumping ahead to Diamond Dogs. Uh, That's so good. And some of the later ones, like Young Americans and Scary Monsters, is a really good way to kind of capture the whole uh, Thin Two era. And there's a lot of great stuff there, too.
0: I mean, I think, like, David Bowie does so much science fiction in his music and I you know I want people who are like coming at this from a comics to consider like like looking at it and addressing it that way like you know Diamond Dogs and you mentioned it in the book is like a just is is actual dystopian book he wanted to do George Orwell's 1984 I'm actually glad he didn't because what we got was something that's you know significantly different and interesting in its own way
1: yeah, and uh, we kind of kind of gave, as far as the science fiction goes, uh, we kind of gave it a Steve Ditko, Doctor Strange feel in parts of the book to kind of give mm-hmm. that that psychedelic viewpoint um, when he actually meets, Bowie actually meets Ziggy Stardust toward the toward the very end uh, of the first half of the book and kind of. Uh, they have a conversation and I thought that was really kind of a weird sci-fi way to introduce that persona for the first time before they before he gets on stage with it
0: it definitely also reminded me of the Mike Alred, um Red Rocket 7 because in Red Rocket 7 you have this alien who is sort of going through music history and inspiring people and like running away from his home planet and it felt like I don't know, that conversation definitely reminded me of that too.
1: For sure, and uh, when I I remember writing that scene with with Alred in mind, so I must have written a little bit more to the, of the script in between the initial draft and when I found and before he signed on officially. Uh, but I wanted to wanted to make sure he drew that and when he when it came out those pages came back it was pretty much how i pictured an all red uh doctor strange scene in my head so i, I was reading the silver surfer at the time so it kind of that was definitely oh, in my yeah. head there
0: oh um, his art was so good on that book it was mm. so great
1: uh mm. it's probably the best silver surfer i know there's a lot of competition with kirby and john basima and, and mobius but i i, I still think all reds is probably the new king for as far as silver surfer art goes
0: It's interesting because like, there's a lot of Marvel comics in particular are referenced in a lot of psychedelic and like Prague rock Uh from England, despite the fact that comics were really freaking expensive. American comics were really expensive over there. But I just, I don't, I'm trying to think of a specific Bowie reference to a specific comic thing and I'm drawing a blank. I'm sure as soon as I get off this interview,
1: uh, there is a song on one of his later albums that actually references Seeing My Life in a Comic. I can't remember the name of the track, but Mike would know. The
0: song is a new killer star from the album Reality.
1: Oh, and oh. Uh, he thinks, Mike Howard thinks that might have been a reference to Red Rocket 7. He's not positive, but uh, he likes to it, think, yeah. think, that, think that Bowie saw himself depicted in that comic and, uh, and approved. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. But you made me think of that because, like, there's a Doctor Strange comic in the collage on the cover of an early Floyd album, for example, where, like, if you look at it carefully enough, you're like, that's Doctor Strange, like, underneath various layers of weird collage. And I'm thankful that Disney hasn't sued Roger Waters, I guess, at this point. So. <laughs>
1: Oh, there's, there was an artist named Rick Satriani who wasn't really proc prog rock, but he did an album called Surfing the Surfing with the Aliens. Yes. And it was definitely a Silver Surfer cover that he used and he got away with it.
0: <laughs> Damn. Power <laughs> to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I have got a few questions that were sent in to me from the listenership um, or the potential listenership, as it were. Curious whether they've had any comments from Bowie's kids. I mean, I like the book just came out, so I'm not sure how that would be. But
1: well, fancy that you mentioned that because uh, Neil Gaiman tweeted uh, to our surprise that the um, Bowie estate loves the book. He said those exact words. So, uh oh, yes. from, So from what we can, from what we can tell, the um, uh, Duncan really likes the book. uh, And we're hoping that he liked how his father was depicted in it, and we hope the rest of the family loves it as well.
0: Well, he's working on some graphic novel stuff right now with uh, with Alex DeCampi. I
1: I know. What a a great dream team. team. I think that whatever they produce is going to be magic. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely. He's been tweeting a lot about fair pay for artists, so I think that I'm really happy that the team on that is going to be paid well, and that he's kind of Le- leading the way of the discussion about hey you know in comics these guys these artists really aren't being paid enough and i think you guys should pay them more and i think that's great
0: yeah definitely um and 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 talking about like fair pay with artististic creation is definitely a thing that comes up in 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 your book as well
1: There's uh, a scene toward the end of the spider's life during the last leg of the tour where the spiders find out how much they're they're making and get very upset Uh, and kind of confront the manager who's kind of indifferent uh, to hostile and it really led to the breakup of the band uh, because there wasn't really much money going around because the manager was taking a lot of it. and um, so that was one of the reasons that this, one of the big reasons that the spiders went their separate ways. And little did they know that uh, Rano had his own separate deal uh, with the manager and Tony DeFries and and kind of uh, in a way betrayed the rest of the band and went off on his own and didn't, wasn't really with them because he had his own lucrative deal on, on the side and did his own solo stuff after that and kind of left the rest of the spiders to find their own way.
0: But what I loved is the fact that it was, you know, the American artist, the American um, like, like, like touring musician who was joining in to do piano was the one who who helped them realize it. And he was like, well, my rates are higher because I'm in the musician's union. And it's it's always been a challenge. I used to work for the musician's union. Um, It's always been a challenge sort of getting that into the rock music space. We are as, you know, orchestras and then studio artists um, and Broadway pit bands and stuff like that were always part of it. Um, there there was a much more complicated, there's a book about it actually, um, uh, situation between rock musicians and, and the Musicians Union, but it just shows you like, yeah, if you, you know, organizing and having uh, actual like stand, you know, minimum standards make the big difference.
1: I know a lot of those musicians didn't realize at the time in the seventies and eighties that their managers were taking such a big cut and they were making nearly as much money as they were supposed to be making. And uh, a lot of those guys got signed bad contracts and it got screwed. I mean, going all the way up to uh, groups like NWA, which I just saw the yeah. movie, movie of and how they were taken advantage of. And it's very, very common in the industry. And I think that, hopefully artists are a little smarter today and have a little better lawyers and better eye on the ball there and they're not getting taken for a ride like they used to be
0: another listener question was will there be an uh, MCR I, uh, my chemical romance comic book i remember and they also said uh and they also they were they were referencing they remembered the old kiss comics um you know i i, I my thought on that obviously was like you know MCR like Gerard Way is like making his own comics but mm-hmm. um
1: i would love to do one uh i've talked to an artist named melissa karcher and who's a huge mcr fan and she's done span art there and i approached her and said you know why don't we pitch a mcr bio around and didn't really get any traction with that but would still like to do one of those someday hopefully with jarred's blessing uh just because there's another band that's extremely visual and would make an amazing graphic novel so whether he um Gerard ends up doing one himself about the band, which he kind of sort of did uh, with the Killjoys comic, A Dark Horse, where it was mm-hmm. more fic- kind of a fictional persona of them. But if he ever decided to do an actual biography of them as a graphic novel where either he wrote or oversaw with a different writer or an artist, uh, I think it would probably be a bestseller.
0: Yeah, definitely. I I feel like I'm I'm just a little bit too old to be as into MCR as like the MCR fans are. But that's definitely a comic with a huge listenership among, I mean, a band with a huge listenership among comics readers. So uh, you, I'm are,
1: old. Are, I'm I'm old too. But you should listen to the black the Welcome to the Black Parade. I, I think didn't be like it
0: that much. Oh. I was like, this is fine. <laughs> like. Uh... I don't know. My uh, response to it was literally like, "This is fine." Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I, I like a lot of newer artists uh, as well as older stuff. Uh, if 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 I turn on the uh, alternative nation station on on, on, on um, XM, there's still a lot of great music in there. So even though I'm still a huge classic rock fan, as you know, uh, there are a lot of recent bands that uh, some recent there's some bands that kind of throw back to that era. Uh, and so they're a lot of fun to listen to, even for for people whose kind of music tastes uh, ended in nineteen eighty nine.
0: Mm. Well, are you you're definitely thinking about you know additional uh, graphic novel work around musicians and artists? I take it.
1: Uh, immediately after selling this book, I put together Freddie Mercury one, found a great artist, pitched it around to all the publishers, uh, and didn't get any takers. I think. Hmm. the the movie coming out around then and not doing too well critically kind of had a lot to do with it. Uh, I would still like to that do It has f-
0: nothing uh, to do with that. It. <laughs> it's so irritating. It's the movie's fault, the movie's bad, not Freddie Mercury's fault. Uh, Shit.
1: I know. I would still like to do a, book, uh, a graphic novel about him someday. I think it would be pretty incredible, but uh, as far as that goes, nothing in the works. But if if any bands or artists want to talk to me about doing something official or unofficial with their blessing, I'd be happy to to jump into that well again because uh, doing graphic music bios is, is a lot of fun. Um,
0: so to you, like, what do you think are the requirements for make for a band or a musician being a good fit for a graphical music bio?
1: they have to have a pretty eventful career. Uh, Things have to happen that are wild and crazy and they have to have kind of a visual stage presence. Uh, So there's, they're like the monkeys would be a a really, Mm -hmm. really, really fun to do. Alice Cooper, uh, Elton John, uh, George Michael, someone like that would, with a really good history and a lot of ups and downs. uh, A lot of great albums. I think it would be really fun to write about.
0: Yeah, those definitely sound amazing. Do you want to talk a little bit about your other work as well?
1: Yes. Uh, before before this Bowie book, uh, I did a uh, series for IDW called Satellite Falling, and that was the space opera. Uh, I worked with an artist named Stephen Thompson, who's done a lot of Star Trek comics. So this is kind of a Star Trek, Star Wars homage, and it turned out really well. Uh, and... It was it came together great, had a really good protagonist, and a really interesting cast of alien characters, and that, that was a wonderful experience. Uh, before that, I did Amala's Blade with Michael D. Alinas, uh, mm-hmm. who's gone on to do The Woods at, at Boom Studios and a mm-hmm. lot of t- TMNT comics. And he's an amazing artist, and that was really, really fun to do as well. Um, coming up after Bowie, I have a lot of projects in the pitch stage. So I'm looking forward to hopefully um, Bowie giving my career kind of a kick in the butt and getting some of those <laughs> independent projects going, uh, and maybe some attention from the big two as well. Would be nice.
0: Well, I'm, I'm taking a look at Satellite Falling, and it looks really striking. When, when did when did this come out?
1: Uh, the trade paperback came out in 2018, but the majority oh, so. of the series was in 17 and. Uh, it was got a lot of great reviews reviews were solid uh sales weren't too great as typical for indie comics but i we still had a lot of fun working on it and would love to come back to that universe again someday
0: so how did you how did you start writing comics
1: uh i was a writing major in school did a lot of comic book journalism before I graduated, I interned in Comics Buyer's Guide and uh, got a whole look at that side of things. I was freelanced writing about comics for many years uh, for CBG and many other places and kind of got the comic book writing bug around that time. I uh, did several web comics in the early 2000s that no one should Google because they're all pretty universally terrible. Oh but okay. but those did lead to a couple of short DC stories about Bizarro and about uh, Captain Marvel Shazam, and those were a lot of fun to do for DC's anthologies. And that kind of led to the uh, those independent comics I mentioned. Uh, so it so everything's a starting point. Even if you're not too much of a fan of your old work, it's still uh, a place to start and get better and learning as you go and as you get published is definitely the best way to do comics.
0: I believe it. Um, but yeah, it's such a recurring theme. So many people I'll talk to on the show will be like, first, I did these webcomics. Please don't Google them. They're terrible. It's like <laughs> probably one of the most said phrases on the show. And yet here, all these people are on my show now. So
1: it's everything. Um, they had, it did have some of that stuff did have fans. So people did seem to like it at the time, even if I can't stand reading it now, it's, it had a, it had a place in time.
0: Who do you feel like were influential on in your writing? for comics
1: uh, for me uh, for writing mm-hmm. comics uh i think that uh i think um chris claremont uh peter david Kurt Busick, guys like that that were really kind of um uh, brian michael bendis guys that, that were really dialogue heavy and really focused on characters and looking beyond the fight scenes and just really what was happening. Uh, Astro city was definitely a big influence on my writing because he kind of went around the corner and show what the regular people were doing amidst uh, all the fighting. I thought that was a really novel approach. So that was mm. t- one of my favorites very early on. Uh, so people like that. Gail Simone is an amazing writer. Very uh, lots, yeah. of, lots, lots of humor, lots of great dialogue. Uh, lots of amazing original characters. Uh, secret six is one of my all time favorites. And so, <laughs> so she's definitely influenced, and also is also a great person, in as well, uh, most of my writing and artist influences are, are people that I would actually um, respect as human beings. If if I find out that a creator has done bad things, I pretty much they pretty much lose me as a fan and as a peer. <laughs> and I pretty much drop them like a hot potato and get rid of all their comics. So, uh, as wow. long as, as long as they're, you know, as long as they're not being abusive toward anyone and they're not awful, horrible Maca or people like that, then I'm, then we're, <laughs> we're, then we're golden. Then, then, um, then I'll still read your stuff and still be a fan. Uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> my, my, my friend and I did a big deep dive into secret six, um, just about i guess several months ago on the podcast and um yeah that stuff really holds up it's so fucking good
1: to read some of her other stuff around that period that i haven't read yet like uh Batgirl and birds of prey those are birds- next on my list yeah
0: totally totally um and, and you know i think like when we were talking about these different periods of comics like there's so many people it's like built into the team you know Um, I I feel like a lot of the artists that she was working with on secret six did better work than the artists she was working with on the other books, but they're still really enjoyable and you should check them out. Okay.
1: Yeah. It's uh, definitely, the artist does make a difference uh, as far as the quality of a book The writer can do the best they can. And if the artist doesn't, doesn't, you know, bring their a game, it can, Mess it up, but uh, see, she's. I think she, most of the artists that she's worked with have been really good. Uh, like uh, Dale Eaglesham on on Secret Six, I think, mm-hmm. uh, was yeah, really yeah. good. Really, really good pairing, and they were they were like a match made in heaven. So I really like how he drew Bane and and some of the other characters, and uh, so I need to go reread that whole thing again now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it was just such a dream team having you team up with Mike and Laura. Like, I I really think that they're two of the greatest comic artists living period and you got them working on like the greatest musician artist creator whatever i i don't like i don't it's not a competition but like let's be honest like bowie is the greatest so um he is so,
1: and um working with mike and laura's is, is a bucket list uh uh i just get to check that off which i never thought i'd be able to do uh, growing up reading his uh, Madman and uh, then reading X-Force and Ecstatics and loving mm-hmm. th- loving the shit out of that and just being able to work with that guy <laughs> once mm-hmm. in my life uh, is pretty incredible uh, so I think that I, I get to say that I did a book with him and I think that even, no matter what else I do after this uh, I've got that so great
0: <laughs> any, other, uh, any other comics from him you want to give a shout out to?
1: He's, he's doing a Dark Horse. Uh, I don't know if it's a one shot or a miniseries. At, it's coming out this year called X Ray Robot, and it's set in the Madman universe. And this, just from the art and the premise of the story, I mean, it's all going to be one of the first in line to buy that. It looks incredible. So
0: it's, so it's set right. in the Madman universe. I think oh, wow. So. I think so.
1: And it looks really, really original and unusual. And, and of course, um, him and Peter Milligan are re teaming to do more with the X-Force aesthetics characters uh, this year. And so I'm I'm excited about that, obviously.
0: Yeah, it is a very exciting time in X-Men land right now.
1: Yeah, one of the Marvel's things that I'm reading right now is the John Hickman run on uh, X Men, like everyone else, and uh, really being blown away by that. And that's forcing me to up my game as a writer because if if he can put something like this together with these amazing artists uh, and amazing designers, then uh, I think the rest of us need to, to kind of step up a little bit to uh, either that or quit altogether. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Can you let our listeners know where they can find your work online?
1: Uh, you can always talk to me on Twitter at Tropical Steve. Uh, and I'm also on Instagram at Son of Stev. And uh, you can uh, email me anytime um, through the link on that site. Send me a direct message and I'll be happy to talk to, to anyone. And you can f- find my work in Barnes & Noble at your local comic shop and on Amazon.
0: Yeah, your book is really everywhere now. I've seen people posting photos of it on display in different bookstores. Apparently
1: it got out a little early, which is pretty cool, because that means I'm going to have to go to my local Barnes & Noble tomorrow and see if it's on the shelf there and take a picture.
0: Awesome. Yeah, definitely, folks. Go out and get it in the store. It's a gorgeous book, and I think would be an amazing gift as well as thing for yourself.
1: Spend all of your gift cards that you got on Christmas.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. So to our listeners, thank you for joining us. I hope that wasn't too much geeking out about a very specific topic for you. But I suppose if you've listened to my podcast episodes about the Venture Brothers, you've probably heard me talk about David Bowie at great length before. I am always here for that. I will talk about David Bowie till I'm blue in the face. There's always more to say. Um, I definitely, you know, I, I, I'm i so happy to have an opportunity to talk with you about something that combines my two great loves of comics and uh, in bowiness. Uh you know, I, I one thing I have said on um, Twitter, and I'll say it here because it'll never happen, so it's not like I'm ruining my own IP. But whenever you know the the uh, the the Jack Kirby book from the Fourth World uh, that he did as a postscript to it, which is the Hunger Dogs, which was a continuation of the New Gods series. I was thinking about the hunger dogs and I was thinking about diamond dogs and I was like, I just really wish that there was a hunger dogs and diamond dogs mashup, combining like a musical, like using Bowie's designs for the hunger dogs, but doing the story from diamond dogs or some configuration of this. And like David Bowie would be Metron. Like David Bowie is Metron in that story. David Bowie would be Metron.
1: uh, I know Actually, a, uh, I wanted to mention there's a Bowie art gallery uh, going on during a store signing I have on January 11th at Tate's Comics in Fort Lauderdale, and Ooh. I know I know several artists have contributed Bowie pieces. I don't think anyone's doing it done a New Gods mashup, but but uh, people should stop by and take a look.
0: <laughs> awesome. Are there any other events coming up that folks should know about?
1: Uh, Mike and Laura are doing another signing around then uh, at Powell's in Portland actually I think it's in Beaverton I used to go to Powell's all the time I grew up in Portland and it's a huge bookstore it's probably the biggest bookstore you've ever been in your life and they're doing a signing and Q&A there so people should go. either go depending on what coast you live on you should either check out their signing or ours and if you're in, in between um, we can't help you but hopefully we'll, 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 <laughs> we'll wind up at a convention or, or a comic shop near, near you sometime soon
0: Yeah, it broke my heart that your book wasn't out in time to be on my panel about comics and music at New York Comic Con this past year. I I think we actually chatted about that. I was like, God fucking damn it. So (laughs) I have to find another excuse to pitch it in the future. So I guess it's my last question to you is, okay? so I'm casting Bowie as Metron. Who do you cast David Bowie as in a comics related project?
1: I think Bowie as Doctor Strange would have been really cool if if oh, they had done yeah. that. I think he would have been. I mean, he was t- he was amazing, Nikolai Tesla. So that's kind of a natural extension of that. So I think that if they were if if they Marvel had act together in the eighties, doing really good movies and cast Bowie as Doctor Strange, I think that would have been really neat.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I actually also have a. Uh, this is really purely aesthetic, more than anything else. I have a Kevin Wada. Um, commission on my wall that's of uh, nightwing in the like the old glam rock nightwing jumpsuit as ziggy stardust that's
1: awesome i love kevin wada's work he's amazing uh, you'll you have to send that to me i want to see that
0: yeah i'll post you a picture <laughs> it's it i mean it's i've posted it before but i'm always happy to post it again but i i was like kevin wada's amazing artist i'm only going to be able to commission one thing what is it going to be and i had written a review of um one of the new teen titans themed book from the um the the, the dc like relaunch uh, the convergence and i named the name of it like the rise and fall of starfire uh, uh, of like starfire and the spiders from tamarin or something like that <laughs> and um I. That's when I was like, oh yeah, no, I got to do a Ziggy Stardust, New Teen Titans mashup. Like, I'm not even that big of a New Teen Titans fan, but he's wearing a glam rock jumpsuit already, mm-hmm. so you're already half the way there.
1: Yeah, his first Nightwing costume is totally disco, and that 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 uh, that fits. It makes a lot of
0: sense. Yeah. So um, for Graphic Policy Radio, we are on every podcast platform you can think of. Please like us and review us. I would love to get some new reviews in. You can find me on Twitter a little bit too much at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana underscore Brooklyn. And of course, graphicpolicy.com for all of your comics, news, and reviews. And as we like to say here, keep it geeky.